0: Welcome back to Drugs Sometimes Work. I'm Craig Williams. In this multi-part episode, Medicating the Failing Heart. It's now been about 20 years since I attended my first National Cardiology Society meeting. It was the annual meeting of the American College of Cardiology. About 20,000 attendees from all over the world. Cutting edge presentations and meetings on how to manage common as well as uncommon cardiology conditions. As I record this podcast, guidelines for all things cardiology related are commonly referred to as the ACC AHA guidelines. The ACC AHA guidelines for hypertension, the ACC AHA guidelines for myocardial infarction, the ACC AHA guidelines for heart failure. The ACC portion stands for the American College of Cardiology. AHA is the American Heart Association. There was a time when the NIH, our National Institutes of Health wrote some of the guidelines for common cardiology topics. Many clinicians still recognize the acronym JNC for Joint National Committee, which was an NIH group that wrote the hypertension guidelines through eight different iterations and updates beginning in the 1970s and just ending in 2014. Or the acronym NCEP, NCEP, the National Cholesterol Education Program which was another NIH work group that wrote the cholesterol guidelines over a similar period of time. But now the NIH has gotten out of the guideline business and all things cardiology are written by the ACC AHA. And their annual meetings have always been a good place to learn about cardiology topics. The annual ACC meeting is always in March. AHA meets in November. That first year I attended, ACC was meeting in Anaheim I was living in Indiana at the time and Anaheim in March sounded pretty good, so off I went. As I was looking through their programming, one talk sounded particularly intriguing. Contemporary management of diastolic heart failure. At the time, we were just figuring out how good beta blockers and asymmeters were for what we called systolic heart failure. As recently as the early 1990s, beta blockers were still contraindicated in heart failure of any kind because of their propensity to acutely worsen heart failure symptoms. And when we say heart failure of any kind, we're really just talking about two kinds. At the time of this ACC meeting in the early 2000s, we refer to them as systolic heart failure and diastolic heart failure. A few years later though, ACC and AHA, along with the European Society of Cardiology, agreed to rename them. Systolic heart failure was then known as heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And diastolic heart failure would be known as heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. A lot of folks, though, including a lot of cardiologists, like the older names better, and they still use them in practice. They were nicely descriptive. Systole is a phase of the heart cycle where the ventricles are contracting and squeezing. And diastole is a phase where the ventricles are relaxing and filling. So systolic heart failure, a failure during systole, is a failure to properly squeeze and to eject blood, and diastolic heart failure, failure during diastole, is a failure to relax and to fill. Regardless of which etiology is occurring, cardiac output drops because I'm either not ejecting a sufficient proportion of blood with each heartbeat, or there is enough blood in the left ventricle for me to eject. Neurohormonal changes kick in and try to compensate led primarily by increases in the sympathetic nervous system and the renin-angiotensin system. But eventually, things deteriorate anyway, and symptoms of heart failure ensue. And while it is true that failing to squeeze properly results in reduced ejection fraction, and failing to relax properly results in a preserved ejection fraction, the old language of systolic and diastolic failure was nicely utilitarian. And while there's no going back now, If you still want to call it systolic heart failure and diastolic heart failure, that's okay with me. Okay, back to Anaheim about 20 years ago and our ACC talk on managing diastolic heart failure. I had high expectations for the talk because pharmacologic interventions for systolic failure, aka heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, were proving quite successful. But in that way, the talk was disappointment. Not because the science wasn't good, but because early interventions were proving ineffective. It was really a talk about what didn't work for diastolic failure. And at the time, aside from using diuretics as needed for edema, there were no proven therapies for diastolic heart failure. Clearly, diastolic heart failure was something quite different from systolic heart failure. And in fact, that was the main message everyone took away from the talk, which included a nice discussion of the pathophysiology of diastolic failure and the fact that the increasing incidence we were seeing was being driven by poorly controlled hypertension in the community an elevated blood pressure means increased afterload for the left ventricle and just like any other muscle when the left ventricle works harder it grows bigger not unlike curling barbells makes the biceps grow bigger making the left ventricle work harder makes that muscle grow bigger too but While larger biceps might be nice, in this case, bigger is not better. As the left ventricle enlarges, it thickens and hypertrophies in ways that make it less able to relax quickly. And failing to relax quickly means pressures don't drop fast enough to help blood move forward from the pulmonary circulation into the left ventricle. But after a nice presentation on the pathophysiology of diastolic heart failure, The speaker was confident that our growing understanding of the disease would soon translate into improved therapies. Fast forward to the present times and our most recent ACC AHA guideline on managing heart failure. In 2017, a focused update on heart failure was released, and it listed exactly two class one recommendations for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, our diastolic heart failure. Number one use diuretics as needed for edema. Same as what I heard 20 years ago. Number two, control blood pressure. Same as what we discussed 20 years ago. And that's it. While there are some other recommendations, they're vague and none of them are class one, meaning well-supported things we should be doing for all of our patients. So two decades after that nice talk at ACC regarding diastolic heart failure, our improved understanding of pathophysiology has not translated into improved therapies. In 2021, all you really need to know about managing diastolic heart failure is what we knew when we started this millennium. Use diuretics as needed and control your patient's blood pressure. But if progress in treating diastolic failure has been frustratingly slow, progress in systolic failure has been anything but in fact our relative success in developing new therapies for systolic heart failure means as soon as you make that diagnosis you potentially have a polypharmacy problem on your hands no less than eight classes of drugs are now discussed in editorials and guideline updates for systolic heart failure a couple of cardiologists summed it up nicely in an editorial in 2020 by explaining how we become quote victims of our success in failure end quote So for the rest of this multi-part episode, we're going to look briefly at the new data for most of those eight classes of medications for systolic heart failure. The ones we need to know about to truly manage our patients in a contemporary way. Does every patient with a diagnosis of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction need eight classes of medications? No, absolutely not. But what should be considered optimal medical therapy for systolic failure in 2021? Which, if any, of those newer agents really improves on what we've been using for systolic failure since I attended the ACC meeting two decades ago? To understand that, we need a little bit of history. In fact, a bit of history is often just as important to understanding the evolution of drug therapy as it is in other areas of life. But unlike in some of those other areas of life, in the world of evolving drug therapies, failing to understand the past doesn't doom us to repeat it but it does greatly limit our ability to put newer therapies into context. If we all agree that not every patient with systolic heart failure needs to be on eight different drugs, then which one should they be on? What combinations make sense? Should newer therapies actually replace some older therapies? Definitive answers to these questions are surprisingly difficult to come by. That's because once a therapy is established as effective, it becomes a new default comparator for newer drugs. It becomes no longer ethical to do a placebo controlled trial for disease when proven therapies for that disease exist. Because that would mean denying that proven therapy to those patients. Drug manufacturers wouldn't want to do that trial and investigation review boards or IRBs which oversee clinical trials wouldn't allow it. But what we can do is learn our history. How effective were those proven therapies for systolic heart failure when they were studied back in the 1980s and 1990s? And how much added benefit do we get from combining our newer therapies along with those older proven therapies? Those are questions we can't answer, and those answers can be surprisingly illuminating. And a great place to start is with what is widely agreed to be the most effective drug class we have for systolic heart failure, the beta blockers. We're going to close out part one of this episode, a little history on the beta blockers and heart failure. And then we'll open up part two of this episode with some hard data on how the efficacy of this important drug class compares to our newest drug for systolic heart failure, which was just approved in 2021. All right, I mentioned earlier that when I was a student, beta blockers were still considered relatively contraindicated for all forms of heart failure. Alpha and beta receptors, not coincidentally the first two letters of the Greek alphabet, mediate the responses of our sympathetic nervous system in all kinds of different organs. When we refer to beta blockers for heart failure, we're referring to the beta 1 receptor. Beta 2 receptors are also found in the heart, but there's no convincing evidence that they play an important role in heart failure. Drugs which non-selectively block both beta 1 and beta 2 receptors like propranolol or carvedilol, don't work any better than drugs which selectively block just the beta 1 receptor like metoprolol. The heart muscle itself in the myocardial cells beta 1 stimulation increases contractility and helps to maintain ejection fraction. In systolic heart failure that makes sense in fact wanting more contractility is a primary reason for revving up the sympathetic nervous system. Crank out more epinephrine and norepinephrine and get more squeeze out of that heart muscle. But over time, that's like keeping our foot pressed all the way down on the accelerator. The engine starts to overheat and eventually to fail. As that happens, the left ventricle injection fraction drops, cardiac output drops, and eventually our patient starts developing symptoms of heart failure. Beta blockers are the brake on the system, literally blocking that excess sympathetic drive. But just like when teaching teenagers to drive, we have to be careful in how we apply the brakes. Slam them down too quickly and things slow down too quickly. Ejection fraction can drop too much, and our patient can experience an acute worsening of their heart failure symptoms. That was a problem with some of the early trials of beta blockers done in the 1980s. Researchers started figuring out from animal models that beta blockers could paradoxically be good for heart failure patients with reduced ejection fraction. But higher doses of beta blockers were started, like what was commonly used in hypertension. Contractility dropped, cardiac output went down, and many patients' symptoms got worse. They would come back to the emergency room or even be admitted to the hospital with an acute heart failure exacerbation. So we learned. We started applying the brakes more slowly. Pills were cut in half, lower doses were started, and up titration was done slowly that gentle application of the brakes worked. Studies that used echocardiography showed that while ejection fraction still dropped a bit in the early weeks after starting a low-dose beta blocker, it started to come up within a couple months. And by six months, virtually everyone's heart was doing better. But how much better? And what outcomes were improved? In short, how good is this core class of drugs for systolic heart failure? And how do our newer classes of medications compare? We'll pick that up in part two of this episode. And we'll also put a twist on the old saying that the difference between a drug and a poison is dose. So I'll see you soon for part two. And until then, don't forget medications for heart failure sometimes work.